Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day. Welcome aboard Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1261, which is entitled They'll Be Back. Our podcast title is Pods Bodkins. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And here we are, another day of Zero G. If you are out there on holiday, I hope you're enjoying yourself. Yes, or indeed. On a, or on an unauthorised sickie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, okay, what do we have got today? Uh, I'm going to look at Terminator Dark Fate, mm. which was very... Weirdly abbreviated on the cinema marquee. You know how they have the uh, mm. the, the digital crawl oh, yes. above the ticket thing. <laughs> it came out Terminator Dark Fat. <laughs> I have no idea what they're doing with all of that. Oh dear. And we also have uh, probably Into the Tall Grass. Yes. A king adaptation. They're very big right now. Mm-hmm. And speaking of kings, yes, we have The King, which is on Netflix as well. Um, Into the Tall Grass is also on Netflix. Yep. So these are all just dropped. And, and I'd really been looking forward to The King. If my Shakespeare, because I'm fascinated by the uh, the the SCU, the Shakespearean Cinematic Universe. Yes, indeed. And it, I mean, it's an exciting concept. Hmm. And Timothy Chalamet, very hot right now. Is he really? Yes. I, I can't understand that, apart from the fact that he's Paul Atreides in the New Dune, but that hasn't <laughs> dropped yet. No, it hasn't. People are very excited about that. But yeah. he hasn't been in very much genre, so I feel like... Were mm. you familiar with him before you watched this? Uh, no. <laughs> Not really, um, apart from Interstellar. But he is the latest uh, ingenue male actor, so... Well, uh, speaking of the ones who weren't the latest... Um, uh, Tom Hiddleston played Henry V in that uh, Hollow oh. Crown um, series, which was yeah, nice. a much lower budget than, yes. than a motion picture. And, and it really felt like it was, but not in a bad way. Mm. Um, I grew up with um, uh, Shakespeare, BBC Shakespeare on uh, the weekends, yes. playing on telly. And a lot of those were, were modest budgets. So, you know, if you're going to have fight... Cut away from a battle scene kind of stuff or... I, th- I seem to remember they used a tapestry. Oh, which That's kind of cool. Good idea. Yeah. I mean, it's the mother of invention, is it not? Mm. Uh, just a quick sidebar. Yeah. Because I'm not very familiar with any of the Henry. The works. Henrys. The yeah. Henrys. What is your sort of go-to favourite Shakespeare that you would always want to see an adaptation of? Oh, that's a really difficult question. Mm. Um, I've got a bunch of them. Yeah, right. You know, so the bunch of them includes Henry V. Yeah, sure. Uh, and um, Taming of the Shrew. Oh, yeah. And uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Um, you know, for, uh, and Macbeth. Macbeth is probably my... <laughs> trying to find some wood to knock on, but there's nothing. <laughs> Mine's the most... Oh, I'm yeah. most familiar with Macbeth. Yeah. I think that's my favourite Shakespeare. And, and in fact, the Roman Polanski um, adaptation of Macbeth uh, got me interested in armouring. Oh. 
Oh, yeah. there you go. Way back in the day, I think it was the very first film that I watched where the armour looked pretty interesting. Yeah, thinking, nice. Oh, this is cool. <laughs> Get on to that when we're talking about this film. Um, it's directed by David uh, Michaud. Yeah. Michaud? Yeah. yeah. Michaud. Michaud? Uh, oh, it's, it's, there's a picture here saying how to pronounce it. Actually, Siri got a Michaud. Michaud. That makes sense. And he was a, he's an Australian um, film director, screenwriter, producer and actor born in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. We will know him for Animal Kingdom, which is a – I think it's actually a pretty damn good um, crime drama. Yeah. And did spawn like a series and an American – Knockoff oh, and really? all kinds of things. Yep, absolutely. I knew about the series. I didn't know they remade really it. So in they did um, an American version mm-hmm. as they want to do, and I don't believe it was very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a drama one based on based on the film yeah. by Michelle 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 Michelle. And I also saw um, the dystopian um, science fiction movie, The Rover. Ah, yes, yeah, that had um, Robert Patterson in it. I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. And um, and uh, the guy who played the idiot in <laughs> in um, and he really was he was dumber than dirt in uh, True Blood. Um, oh, um, yes, Australian guy Ryan Ryan Quantern, yeah, who Quant- we interviewed at one stage. Oh, nice. Yeah, and he was actually much smarter than his character on not, screen. Not difficult, but no. I'm sure he was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the Rover, I thought, was an excellent uh, post-apocalyptic film as well. So. Actually, it was Robert Pattinson. Yeah, Pattinson. Yeah, he could he could act. He can act. He can act. This is my pet peeve. Yeah. People dismissing him for Twilight offhand yeah. for Twilight, a film he did like a decade ago mm. or more. Was he any good in it? Really? I, I mean, mean, he's not given much to do. The no. whole role is to be pretty and die, but. Like, I honestly think he's more than proven himself since then. He takes challenging, weird roles. Mm-hmm. He's very method from what I gather, hearing, like, stories from him on set. He is, like, very – he takes chances. I feel like to dismiss him because of something he did when he was up and coming is a fallacy. Mm. That's all well, I'll say. And we not only mention him um, because of all of that. He is in this film, The King, he is. as well. Uh, so <laughs> and I, what a role in this film. So I can actually say I've seen – uh, David Michaud's four feature films there. There you go. Animal Kingdom, The Rover, and War Machine. That's the one with Brad Pitt. Yes, that was another Netflix production, mm. I believe. Mm. It's about, um, was it Afghanistan and uh, a general and how he f- sort of felt a cropper in the system. And Now that I think about it, I can see he, he does have a bit of that distinct style. The cinematography in mm. those films mm. is quite similar. Mm. The, so what happened was that um, um, David Michaud and Joel Edgerton... Yes, another Aussie that we know and love. Mm-hmm, ...sat down and, and and co-wrote The King. Mm. So what they basically tried to do is actually followed along a fairly familiar path for um, adaptations of Henry V for the screen. They pulled out some bits from Henry IV, Part One and Part Two and put it together with Henry V. And usually the reason they do that is to pull out the bits about um, Sir John Falstaff. Yes. Um, you know, Shakespeare's great uh, tragic comic turn. And Edgerton plays Falstaff. Yes. You know, that's one of those roles that um, a lot of actors really really like to have a crack at. Yeah. Uh, especially when they get a little bit older. Yeah. Um, you know, Orson Welles. Which Joel Wells, Edgerton is not, but no. I think he still does a fine job. Orson Welles um, felt so strongly about it that he actually 
uh, did Chimes at Midnight, which is a film about Falstaff. Yes, and that, that's sort of another mishmash compilation, yeah, right, yeah, of, yeah. of bits and pieces because Falstaff appears obviously in a couple. And it's beautifully, a beautiful, relatively low-budget film, Chimes at Mid- Midnight. And I actually kind of wish they'd gone more that way in this one. There's a lot of things I wish they'd done. <laughs> yes. Okay, so moving along. And, and, and I didn't realise this was an Australian production until I saw Blue Tongue Films mm, in, yeah, the, in the credits. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Aussies attached to this. And, yeah, don't be fooled, I guess, by the big name mm. attach attachments. Mm. So they've actually done a, a medieval film, yeah. essentially, because, it, you know, it's about Henry V. Um, Timothy. And I didn't know his, I didn't know his, la- his middle name was Hal. Oh, is it? Yeah, which of course yeah. Prince Prince Hal. So you, you know, there's a bit of resonance there. Um, American actor, um, yes. as we said, he's going to be Paul Atreides in the new um, Villeneuve, Villeneuve. Yes, film Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Remember we looked yes, that up that's last right. time. <laughs> Denise Villeneuve film. Yes. Uh, I actually need like um, Siri in my ears telling me this. Or... I know we do come across some doozy names. Yeah. But... Uh, okay, and of course we saw him in uh, Interstellar. As yes. well, that was the, the main thing I remember him from. And he's also been non-genre. He was um, sort of came of age in Call Me By Your Name and he was also in Oscar nominee Lady Bird. Mm. So this film follows a, f- a quite familiar path, as I've said. There's, uh, there's a, an early chunk about um, uh, Henry growing up and being quite dissolute and yes. um, and drunken and, and a bit of a bored in you company can, with Sir John Falstaff. And you can tell he's a rogue because he has long hair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, later on he becomes the king. This is not a spoiler. No, I feel it's pretty clear. <laughs> and uh, has that complete sort of sea change of personality. Mm. Um, and and that's really the, the dichotomy of the Henry character. Shakespeare plays it quite deftly um there's reasons and non-reasons and just this is how a king behaves and mm. and of course um old will was writing um henry the fifth as a bit of elizabethan propaganda mm. um so he had to be careful um probably more careful than our writers are today because he could get his head chopped off yes uh, but nevertheless, he still gets some palpable hits in Henry V about power. And you know, of course, that Shakespeare was was quite adept at speaking to power and, and speaking of it. That's what would be so nice to glean out of adaptations like this is, you know, the different politics and mm. power dynamic and how it all plays out. I think that's usually quite a good tension, mm. but usually. So what they've actually done here, they're trying, it looks to me like they're trying to do Shakespeare without the dialogue. Um, Which I think is one of the core downfalls of this. Yeah. In that it's not replaced with dialogue of the same tension. Yes, or or calibre for that matter. Yeah, well, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, Okay, we've also got um, uh, Lily Rose Depp, Mm -hmm. Johnny Depp's daughter. Daughter. In it, uh, and you can actually see that when you look at it. I mean, that's yeah. it always that's always magic to me. I was like, oh, Johnny Depp's daughter. <laughs> I do enjoy that they got some French speakers to do some French speaking as well, because yes. Chalamet's fluent as is Depp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, Robert Patterson is in here playing uh, the Dauphin of yes, France. Yes, Dauphin. 
um, who for a dolphin doesn't swim very well. <laughs> or stand very <laughs> well stand in very mud. Well. Actually, that's a very straight down the line interpretation. They always send up the dauphin. Do they? Yeah, yeah, that's, always. That's interesting because I read a little bit about this after I'd watched it, largely because Pattinson's performance has mm-hmm. been much talked about, much, that, much. They always about. make him slightly effeminate. Yeah. Uh, and decadent. And, and a bit comically like... Over the top, yeah, I suppose. A bit bumbling and, and, and arrogant. leans into that quite yeah. well, I think. Arrogant as well, always, mm. always. And, you know, this is not, not unhistorical in, 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 the in p- some portrayals. elements. Yeah. I, think, I think that's very interesting because, yeah. But, you know, in, in essence it means you get to make him the despised villain. Yes. Yeah. And he does bring a bit more excitement into, mm. into the piece. Ben Mendelssohn, <laughs> the ubiquitous Ben Mendelssohn. Yes. Always playing a questionable... Figure. Yes. One day I want to see a movie where Mendelssohn plays a kindly grandfather. He's playing um, um, Henry's um, dad. Yes, Henry IV. But Henry he's IV. so great at at those meaty, uh, insidious roles, I think. Um, and, and let's be honest, this is the fifth film in the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> Henry IV. Uh, by the, I reckon they'll get the bugs out of it by the time they get to Henry VIII. You'd hope. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, no, enough levity. I, I feel like we have to have some levity in it because there's not that much many chuckles in this film. There's no chuckles. <laughs> so, okay, uh, they filmed it over in um, England and in uh, Hungary mm. um, and, you know, around uh, some scenes in um, uh, Berkeley Castle in Gloucestershire. It so, looks- yeah. Beautiful. It, I think it looks great. It, it looks, looks grubby. Yeah. It, it looks authentically medievally it looks grubby. very dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I think it felt very of the time. Mm-hmm. I have no problem at all with the way it looked and, mm-hmm. and felt and all that sort of stuff. Um, but there are some problems. I'm curious to see what you thought of it. You, well, you, you watched it on Netflix too? Yes, yes. So I watched it on Netflix and I had gone in not knowing really what to expect. I was looking forward to watching it because I do like Charlemagne. I wanted to see how he'd go um, holding up a film by himself, essentially. Mm-hmm. I honestly, I found it dreary yeah, and not good dreary, like not uninteresting. I think. Yeah. And I think I, I like the idea. I mean, obviously, a lot of Shakespeare stuff and a lot of movies in this ilk, you can do it with very few battles. It doesn't have to be sexy. As long as you have very good dialogue and you really understand the motivations of the characters and the interactions with each other and how, you know, that all works, you can still make a nice tension there. But I just found a lot of this was quite flat. Mm. And there was a lot of talking. And even when things would happen... I mean, the last, the latter half is much better, I feel, in terms of pace and getting the viewer we, interested. Well, you've got a battle. Sorry? You've got a battle. Uh, yes. Even then, <laughs> the battle, I found myself wondering, like, how, like, how close are we to the end? Like, what is this film doing? Yeah. Because it's a bit overlong. It runs over, like, what, two hours, 15 minutes, maybe? Um, yeah, it just didn't grab me. Uh, have you um, seen Henry V on stage? Or? No, so I'm not very familiar with it. Okay. So perhaps if I had been looking out for touch points of things yeah. I wanted to see portrayed, 
that would have been good or if I had a, an understanding of some of the relationships prior. But I don't think that should be a prerequisite. Well, in, in some cases it can be a considerable challenge once you know those things to watch this film. Well, and and that's <laughs> I guess that's the thing is I, I think you should be able to go into these adaptations yeah. and watch it as a story mm-hmm. and not need that background. I mean, I think there's some good stuff here. There is some excitement towards the end. It just lacked an eternal essence, I think. Okay. Look, there is there is certainly space to do a, a non-Shakespearean adaptation mm. of, of the history of the king. And now's the time. I think people are very interested in those stories, <laughs> especially Britain as fragmented as it is. Well, I know. Let's look back on it. Yeah. Simpler. I don't know. More difficult times. Well, that does actually start with um, Henry um, kicking the ass of the Scots. Yeah. <laughs> so not maybe not the most tactful thing. I mean, the and then that character, Percy, was like one of the more charismatic characters, and then he's gone. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, because, of course, um, Henry V uh, was sort of a commander of um, soldiers as well before he was um, a king, and there's uh, elements where he's hammering the rebels, whether mm. they're Scots or the Welsh, or, mm-hmm. uh, which is all ironic because, of course, the Welsh archers are so prominent in the force of the British at Agincourt, mm. the long bows and everything. So... I think there is room for that, for a, for a more realistic, more expansive yes. uh, look at Henry V. Like a gritty, in which case I'm like, do a gritty three-part mm. series, you know, like really put some time into it, really build some character stuff, mm. do a bit more with yeah. Henry IV. Because you've got to step out of Shakespeare's shadow if you're going to do this. Yeah, I agree. Like don't just drop us in and then quit, like, you know, put in a bit of legwork and maybe you could have done that. But I think it, it shouldn't have been a movie if you're going to do that. When you're doing it like this, it almost reads like you're doing a synopsis mm. of Shakespeare's stories. We've had actually the you know the gristle, the the themes. the language, yeah. That, you know, and yeah. there is a problem with a lot of that. Okay, so just running through this, I felt it. it I, I actually felt they would have been better off of a straight Shakespearean. Mm. Adaptation. Using the language and so on. I mean, for a start, there are no powerful speeches in this, even half as good no. as the iconic half lure once more onto the breach speech or the St. Crispin's Day one. Mm. There's, there's, a, there's an attempt at it. Um, but I, I, I compare this, to, for example, to um, uh, the speech that Aragorn gives before the Black Gates of Mordor mm. in The Return of the King. Now, that's not a Tolkien speech. Yeah. The, the writers put that one together. There's a couple of lines from it that are Tolkien. And it's very rousing. Yeah, yeah. That's Vigo doing it, though. Yeah. Um, Timothy, he, he's uh, 24, I think. Yes, he's quite young. And um, Henry was 28 at the Battle of Agincourt. I mean, so Timothy not too, looks young, not too. Not too bad. But I actually don't think, I th- I don't think he energised, he, he ramped up enough for this. No, I don't think so either. I think he's a very good actor, but mm. I just feel like that something in the, he didn't push himself enough in this character. Mm. And there's, I mean, there's plenty of beautiful close-ups of his cheekbones, but that ain't <laughs> gonna do it. And this is from someone who has loved stuff that he's been in. Mm. Um, he just didn't have the oomph. I think they get halfway there, mm. halfway there, but mm. it doesn't feel you like they go the whole step. You see hints of it sometimes. I thought Joel Edgerton was uh, really good as Falstaff. Yeah, um, yeah. And actually, again, I still think they should have maybe pitched this from his POV mm. all the way through. I mean, I think it would have been interesting. always good. Well, I Falstaff think... actually doesn't, doesn't appear in 
Henry V as such. Mm. Uh, it certainly doesn't make it to the battlefield. Well, that's it. So they've done, so they've done they this alternative. Here, yeah. But then they've been hesitant to push it too far. And they even give him this line, and I'm not going to spoil it, that made me laugh out loud. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking, um, well, he says, he says something, well, a little bit of a spoiler, he says something about um, this, the way they're doing it here, <laughs> very stepping outside almost the fourth wall. Mm. Um, this, the way we've done it here makes a better story for Falstaff. And I'm thinking, and I'm just sitting there going, oh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Especially since you've given Falstaff very much the, the position of the voice of the, um, the anti-war yeah. lobby in this film. And mm. that's, that's fair enough. It's a good, a good valid point. But then they sort of give a bit of a reversal on it. And there yeah. is a twist in this film, a, major, that... a twist in this film which I won't explore. Yeah, but is that from... That's they've not, brought that in. Yeah, they've just brought that in, and it and it um, essentially ends up letting Henry off the hook for any of his unsavoury acts, and Ooh. even Shakespeare didn't go that far. I guess I, I didn't see it as letting him off the hook. I won't go into it because I don't. But I feel like it was an interesting comment on his leadership, mm. his type of leadership. It works that way too. Yeah. So I mean, I was interested. I was going to ask if that. It's very jarring for me. From the, the source. I mean, that's bold. It's really quite jarring. And I thought, no, dude, <laughs> or Violet, you did not need to go there. There was yeah. no reason for that. And it doesn't, it sits at odds with the, the context of the film. Yeah. And you haven't even, it just feels like one of those, oh, why don't we do this? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, that, um, that, that bugged me a bit. Um, and the costumes bugged me. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Um, now it does, and, and the first time I looked at it, I thought, oh, because I'm looking at like, oh, there's a, there's a, um, uh, a wide-brimmed helmet, like a First World War mm. British helmet, which mm. were actually medieval siege helmets, yep. that design. There's a couple of those in there. That man there. Okay. They're wearing chainmail that looks real. A mm. uh, little bit bigger in the links, but um, <laughs> nobody else has got to worry about that. Uh, but once again, there are people wearing chainmail without any padding underneath it. Yeah, you know. But you, that's. I mean, I'm always a few things like that. I'm always much more willing to forgive those because they're purely aesthetic choices. Yeah, and, and often you're just going down to the uh, to the uh, the costume shop um, in, in terms of the theatrical costume shop um, and and grabbing whatever suits are, are there and mm. putting something together because it's expensive. It's it is, and I, I I personally do think they did a good enough job with the costuming to create the feeling of what they were going for. But I don't think it was. But meant to be historically accurate. And, I, and I'm all right with that for the spear carriers and stuff. But mm. when you fr- start throwing the nobles in and the king especially, whose yeah, stuff sure. is very well documented... Um, mm. You know, uh, and to the extent that in um, in a previous uh, incarnation, another adaptation, the very famous Laurence Olivier World War Two era, oh, yeah. uh, Henry V, um, there's a, a specific moment where they show one of the, uh, the little uh, um, design details on his crown being lopped off by a sword. Mm. Uh, because we know that because we've got the crown and it's, it's actually lost. You know, yeah, so right. There's some really specific stuff in there that we do know about. Uh, and the king's armour, and this is just a bit of a, I call it a, a, a pot metal puree. You know, it's a yeah. dog's breakfast of stuff, different sort of elements in there. And they really should have put surcoats on the nobles and because there's a very important reason why you do that. The, 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 uh, the nobles want to be identified because that means they're more likely to be taken prisoner Mm. Now, I also did wonder, like, there's a battle. I'm like, how? 
I may have missed something. How can you tell who is who necessarily? Surcoats and shields. Because, but not in this, I guess, is the thing, is that it was quite hard to tell. And banners mm. as well. So not Bruce banners. Well, while they're fighting, Hulk though. Hulk would have smashed. Like, but, while you're in there, they all look the same. Yeah, especially so you when you're up to your neck in mud. You don't know who you're stabbing in the neck. Mm. Um, there are elements mm. in the heat of the battle. The problem is, of course, because some people are using battlefield salvage and... And it can be all very mixed. Quite often they, they tie a, a specific, specific scarf around their arm and, and stuff like and that. Again, and again, like, I, not in this. Like, they didn't do any of that. I mean, you don't mm. have to. If someone is trying to kill you, then that's usually a clue. And if you, you can't make even a mistake. see anyone's face. If you make a mistake. Well, you know, one of the things about Agincourt is that. Um, uh, some of the knights um, discarded their visors or mm. lifted them up because, you know... I mean, in, and in films they do so, so you can tell who is who, yeah. of course. And it's not actually inaccurate because... It can be very bulky. It, it, it's, not, it's, not like the, it's not the cliche of having to be lifted up onto your horse by a crane. Mm. But, uh, and you are quite nimble in armour if it's well-made and well-fitted. Mm. But after a while, yeah, uh, it doesn't matter how fit you are, you get... It's heavy. And they did actually um, have a couple of scenes in this where they showed that it was the guys are quite straight, full on pictures, yeah. frontals of their, of their visors, and they're breathing quite hard. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was quite well done, I yeah, guess. Yeah, there are elements of that battle that I, the mud, you know, yeah. full credits for people drowning in mud. That was really well done, actually. Mm. And the sound design, I think, was good in that scene, too. Except for the fact that when they punched each other, it sounded like they were punching each other on bare skin. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But I, I guess what I mean is they do some stuff point of view style sound. Yeah, this is actually a very uh, a good element in the, in their Battle of Agincourt, which is critical to this mm. film. Um, when they um, and they fight, they're using a fighting style that's been sort of more explored recently by reenactors and. Um, and, and, and people who've um, studied the, the old texts, the, mm. the fight manuals from the day, um, you probably noticed it looked very brawly. Yes, yes. They're Lots in... of wrestly grabs and things. Less um, less big sweeping movements with yes. the swords. Yeah. And more short gripping the sword and thrusting the blade into the face plate. Up close, yeah. very close. Hitting them with the, the cross guard and the pommel right up, you know, very, yep. very brawly. Yeah. And that's actually something that... Um, they, they've had a good advisor there. Yeah, and that makes sense, I think, that style. Well, it's 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 street fighting basically close up. Yeah, although, medieval street fighting. Although everyone seems to forget that they were actually an army Yeah, and that some people actually did fight in formation and help their mates and stuff. Mm. But they did actually do that, um, the idea of the archers, English archers swarming yes. the French knights and just killing the hell out of them using their mallets and their mm. their uh, their misery cords and their poignards and all but the other small things. But this also comes after two hours' worth of... Other stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> other mishmash. So, yeah, I wasn't... I wasn't hugely impressed with mm. the, the armour anyway, which is quite important in this film. Yeah. Um, and I thought that uh, really... <sighs> Is it that difficult? I mean, I know it's not a docker, but you could take five seconds to Google it or to nip out and pick that up. That tells me it was a distinct choice to do it that way. Mm. But I do, as I said, I give them more credit for having real chainmail in there and all that sort of stuff. Mm. <laughs> so they get, they get a big tick there. Unless, of course, they just got plastic stuff from Wetter. And, but that's okay too. I think it looked, I think it moved and looked pretty, yeah. pretty good. Yeah. If inaccurately uh, realised. <laughs> they didn't have a decent soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Mm. I didn't even thought about that. But that was a big hole. When the gold standards 
for mm. Henry V on film, a William Walton for mm. Olivier, and Patrick Doyle for um, Kenneth Branagh's version, then you've got mm. to man up for that or man at arms up. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, and I, I do no, did notice the lack. Um, I didn't, but now you mention it, yeah. Um, and I thought there was some... Um, mm. It was a bit odd the way they had... There's uh, usually what happens in the Battle of Agincourt films, they, they'll they'll absolve Henry a bit from massacring French prisoners mm. of war um, by giving him um, the reason that, uh, well, the battle actually isn't finished yet. We could actually lose this. We need to move on. Yeah. So let's just kill the prisoners. And also I've got another reason because the boys in the baggage train in the camp have been slaughtered by French and I'm mad too. So these little outs that they kind of give him there. But they had all that. They had the... Um, the, the massacre of the boys occurred before the battle. Yes. So I'm, I'm not quite sure why they did that unless they wanted to. But, you know, I don't know. So overall, I think it was a good try. Yeah. There are good parts here. And I do yeah. think some of the scenes and the way some of it was realised was quite striking. It did look and feel very good. But then I was bored. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. Oh, and one other thing. Missed a few marks. And, and I'm, pro- I, you know, I, I, I'm quite familiar with this because I, I sort of studied this around the time of when Branner's one came out. Mm. Uh, that, um, you know, the French are moving in three distinct segments in, in history, uh, in three battles, if you yeah. want, if you will. Um, three lines, okay. And um, the first line's like... Um, this armoured cavalry charge, which is terribly well depicted in Laurence Olivier's film. It's like being in front of a whole bunch of locomotives. Mm. In Branagh's film, having he knows about that. So, of course, what he does is he shows the faces of the English as the charge is coming in, mm. the nerves okay. and the fear yeah, and everything. Yeah. Um, in this one, they, they just sort of all charge in waving their swords. Well, there's a problem with that. These, these knights, uh, although they, they do use swords, most of them have lances. Yeah, right. We've seen... And short lances at that, which is actually a, a tactical point in the in the battle. So I missed that for a start. I think, where are your lances? What are you just, you know, just yeah. going in? And there was no stake wall that the archers had set up anywhere. or um, and, and there was only one battle of, yes. of French troops. Yeah. And part of the whole Agincourt thing is that the, the first one, the first wave gets um, gets embroiled in, in the mud and they turn to flee and they flee straight back into their own second wave. Well, and that would have been um, more tense and interesting yeah, yeah. <laughs> to Here, do that. I, I guess, you know, it's like, oh, Rob, you've read too much about this stuff or maybe not enough. But the, the, the point is that um, if you're going to make it historical, mm. then there's plenty of, of stuff in the, in the history you that you can to... use. Even in the fog of war, you can pick out details. Like before the battle... Henry makes a point of telling his soldiers that the French have declared that they will cut off the uh, the bow, uh, the string uh, pulling f- fingers of the archers when they catch them. Mm. Now that's a pretty heavy duty thing to have happen to you. Your, yeah. your fingers are your livelihood, Ugh. and well, you know you're probably going to die anyway from infection or something probably. like that. Probably. So it's um it's a warning to his archers. This is it. Yeah. This is the possible end of your life and, and it will end in a fairly nasty way. And yeah. it's not – it's a part not of – Not many a, lives le- that's like not in Shakespeare. a nice way. <laughs> I don't think that's in Shakespeare, by the way, if, if memory serves me. But that would be in a detail you mm. could have picked up and really made fly. 
And that's, yeah, any of those things would have made it a much more engaging piece. Mm, And I I suppose even as someone who doesn't know much about the history or is that familiar with the plays, it didn't really grab me on any other levels either. And I think something needs to be able to stand on its own two feet, Mm. unlike the dolphin in the mud. (laughs) But And it didn't for me. Yeah, like I said, there are some elements in there that that work for me. Absolutely. But uh, too many that didn't. There's potential there. And I don't think people should write Timothy Chalamet off as someone who can hold up a picture either. Uh, no, no. I think this was just a bit a bit of a, a misstep, uh, mm. I guess. I actually, liked, the him. Right fit, maybe, I actually I liked him in the early part of the film better than I did. Well, he was very good at, at that. His performance, at least. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that was probably a really good way of playing it, but then mm. he becomes kind of this shell of a very stereotypical portrayal, I thought. Mm. Anyway. This lags behind... To me, um, more conventional Shakespearean adaptations. Uh, you know, uh, Laurence Olivier's magnificent mm. Henry V is, is is a joy to watch, even if it is full on World War Two British and propaganda. I, and I never, I don't think to do a good adaptation, it has to be a hundred percent faithful. Mm. Um, and Kenneth Branagh's uh, is the gold standard. It's mm. it's it's energetic. It's alive. Branagh makes a a pretty convincing. Um, but also um, common man type king, hmm. as as it's Kenneth Branagh, you know. Yeah. And, but he he really nails everything in terms of the the and his armor. His, his film's not all that great either. But it, at least there's some surcoat around. There's some life in there. And it's got Brian Blessed in armor, who looks kind of like what did someone describe him as? Like like a cement mixer is invading France. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, uh, and it's got the great music, Patrick Doyle's yeah. magnificent music score. Music is a gap here. Yeah. And, sure. and as I said, the Hiddleston one in The Hollow Crown, Tom Hiddleston's a fine actor. Yeah, he is. You know, uh, and he doesn't ever get, and the only time he ever gives a low-key performance is when he's in the MCU. <laughs> 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 All right, let's, that's enough of um, The King on Netflix. I did enjoy the wanting to watch it. Yeah. Know? I did. <laughs> All right, so um, I will play uh, Henry V, St. Crispin's Day, The Battle of Agincourt. I'm not going to play the whole 14-minute track. <laughs> this is from the, uh, the Branner, Henry V, and it's um, by the masterful Patrick Doyle. Well, this is Annie Lee. And I'm Morn Kransky of the Kransky Sisters, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 R FM. Lock up your meat safe and beware of the machine with the claw. There we have it. Beware of the machine with the claw. <laughs> uh, Henry V, St. Crispin's Day, the Battle of Agincourt. And that's um, all coming out of Patrick Doyle's score from... Really great track. Yeah, awesome stuff there. And I think that the um, that beat there, I think that's just Brian Blessed <laughs> walking towards the... He's uh, about to say, the dolphin's alive, or something like that. <laughs> okay, well, moving into Terminator. Yes. Dark Fate. The much-awaited Cameron-helmed version. Mm. You know, I actually don't have a problem with sequels. I know that can be a, there's nothing original under the sun. It's like, let's not... <laughs> do a broad brush some sequels really do bring something new to what you thought you knew about an original not all sequels are bad and you can have separate well said <laughs> you can have separate discussions about whether or not 
big budget tentpole franchises mm. um, suck the oxygen off of screens, and you know this is a se- that's, that's totally, a totally separate, separate conversation. But you notice how often um, artistic agendas and manifestos they often end up being a default. Well, the quality's no good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like if it's popular, it can't be any good. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, there's a, yes, there's a whole other route to go down with yeah, this, but um, well, we won't. And I, and I do think these kinds of sequels that are happening now are very interesting because a lot of them are going back to the roots. They're really trying to capture something. So, like the Halloween sequel that was done, yep. that pretty much threw out all of the ones that had come before, almost all of them. Mm-hmm. And then now this one, which I think because there's been a few stop and starts trying to get this franchise. Up again. Oh yeah, yeah. This is the uh, uh, three, four, five, the sixth Terminator movie. Um, James Cameron, of course, um, did the first two. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to endless credit, two great films. Yeah. They've actually showed uh, Terminator on the f- telly the other night. It's lost nothing. Solid, Still solid sci-fi. Raw edged. Very much he yeah. And then they threw money at Cameron for the Terminator 2 and it looks great. You know, it instantly ramped up into the big budget spectacle. Some could argue mm, better. Yeah. Who knows? Some say T2 is better. Um, I, I just think they're two different films. Yeah. Well, um, they are. They really are. One Some prefer the second one. Let's say that. One, unless, you know, there's something timey-wimey going on. One doesn't, two doesn't exist without one. And there is lots of timey-wimey things <laughs> going on in, 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 in Terminator. Uh, number three... Four and five, pretty much yeah. not hitting the target. No. Especially number... Um, the recent one? Number four, I think, from, from memory. Christian Bale? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, memories doesn't... I, I tend to forget about them if I didn't like them That's much. That's fine. Like how you <laughs> blocked out Prometheus. Yeah. Um, what? They've, exactly. We've popped... And they've popped a few um, big names and tried to revive things by slotting in different people who are in the zeitgeist at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've sort of gone back on that a little bit with this. Yeah, I, I thought so. Um, the- there's, let's say that there's some, because this happened before in the Terminator thing, there's kind of some sideways dodging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's also the good. This film opens, I think, with a um, with some waves coming in, uh, an ocean, and it kind of feels like it's washing away the other... <laughs> the, the the non-Cameron a produced cleansing movies, wave. yeah, cleansing mm-hmm, wave, mm-hmm. and all of that's gone. Not that they're trying to get rid of um, the excellent Sarah Connor Chronicles television series. Yeah, of course, I forgot um, that was a thing. Yeah. yeah, that is definitely a thing. And so there's some elements in this that remind me a lot of that. Actually, uh, I think it's a very workmanlike sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, they include some timely real life political commentary. Always a an interesting thing if you do that. Which in this day and age is getting more and more common. Mm. For it to revolve around some core it's about, um, political ideal? It's about refugees and immigrants. Ah, okay. And, and it's very, very timely. I, I could see that right there when I saw it. I was thinking, yeah, yeah, you need to put this in here. Because mm. uh, mm. parts of it are filmed in Mexico, you see. Right, right, right. Interesting, um, interesting. Okay. Uh, it's fast-paced. Um, it's definitely an actioner. And, 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 and I think it shows that the franchise has some AI life in it yet. And it's really when done a, correctly. Yes, when done correctly. It's a genuine pleasure to see Arnie and Linda on screen again in the same film after what twenty eight years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, and she's looking kick ass as well. Yeah, she's still Mrs. Sarah Connor. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Uh, the director, Tim Miller, of course, is our Deadpool man. Yes. Or Deadpool 1, at least. A big hit. Knows his special effects. Um, and also, he was the creator of Love, Death and Robots. Ah. Yeah. I didn't realise that. Yeah. How interesting. And he's done a lot of um, visual effects on video games, too, which I think is pertinent to this film. Which because uh, have, Hellgate, London, Mass Effect 2, oh. and Star Wars The Old Republic. Oh, interesting. And I can tell, so he's like, he knows quite a bit about what you need, the, the, the basic chassis for yes. how this film needs Should to go look together. And come together, yep, yep, yeah. yep. And in fact, as I was watching it, one sequence, I'm thinking, you know what, this would make a kick-ass video game. And sometimes you're watching a movie and that's a bad thing. You're yes. thinking, oh, this is a video game, yeah. first-person shooter. But I'm thinking, no, this would actually be really cool. I could see how this this point here could go either way. Mm. And, this yeah. could be a good video game, I think is what you're saying. Look, I mean, it, it's a very fighty movie yeah. and the fights, I think, work, work quite well. Um, especially, uh, how far can I go into this? Well, just, <laughs> just to roll back a bit, um, David S. Goyer is uh, one of the screenwriters on that. He's... Mm-hmm. Blade, Dark Knight trilogy, less happily, Man of Steel and Batman versus Superman, a lot less happily. Um, uh, he's also a co-writer of video games. And he also worked on Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. Okay. Uh, and so he knows how to work tongue-in-cheek. And also uh, Nick Fury, um, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., that television film in the 1990s. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Oh when God. Nick Fury was still a white man. Yeah, when it was... Um, uh, the Hoff. I'm not oh, kidding. Really? <laughs> no. Yes, it was the Hoff. Oh, yeah. Um, and anyway, the, the 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 fact that he worked on the script um, is interesting because he did the, play some Ghost Rider stuff um, because it got one of the Ghost Riders in it. Um, uh, the the actor who plays Ghost Rider in Agents of Shield, uh, whose name is uh, you'll probably get to it before I do. Gabrielle Luna. Ah, yes. And. Um, and there's a there's a fight where there's a chain being wielded at one stage. Mm-hmm. We've got a ghost rider and a chain in play, and a, a writer who's not a ghost writer, who who knows ghost rider and, and who's a comic book buff. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, you guys, cool. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Linda and Arnie are great. You know, they're just walking into these roles as they as they were. But they they're there. They're not dialing in their performances on this. That's good. You can tell that they're sort of thinking we're passing on the torch, maybe. Yeah. And, so I, I enjoyed every moment they were on screen. Uh, in fact, they kind of blew away the other actors. Um, Mackenzie Davis yes. is uh, appearing once again in another 80s reboot franchise because she was in Blade Runner 2049. Yep. Um, but she's actually good too in this. She's playing a soldier character. Okay. Uh, and you buy it. You, you, you think, yeah, okay, you've got the, got the moves. Pretty important, yeah. Um, and uh, Natalia Rees, uh, who's not familiar to me, she's a Colombian actress, um, uh, is quite creditable as a, as, a, as a younger woman who's involved in this horrible, horrible uh, future past mm. thing that you just don't want to, you know, because yes. we remember in, in the original Terminator, it's like all this comes crashing into Paul Sarah Connor's life. Yeah. And so this is what happens to her, to, to Gabriella Luna. Uh, I'm sorry, not to Gabriella, to Natalia. Uh, and Gabriella Luna is our new Terminator Rev 9, they call it. Right. And he is relentless cool. and methodical. Alrighty. Um, and to me, because I've seen him so recently in Ghost Rider, yeah. he... he he actually feels just as uh, 
as as dangerous as was it Robert Patrick from Terminator Two? Yeah. Mm, yes. Um, Pretty sure that's right. And he 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 looks apart, and um, and I thought he uh, he did the role quite neatly. That's with good. A few little bits and, and pieces in there. I didn't regret seeing this in in, in any way, and I and I, I gladly throw away the other. Um, yes. Two films in what the franchise. What came between? Yes. Yeah. Apart from the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Um, in fact, there's a zero G fight in this film that I quite enjoyed. Oh. <laughs> Would you recommend it for? Do you think it's just really for fans, or do you think it's something someone could stroll into without much? Well, the Terminator thing's so strong in pop culture. Yeah. And the you fact that they do do a bit of it. sideways stuff in this. Cool. You could probably pick it up as you go along. Okay. Uh, but it would be better if you'd seen one and two. Yeah. Um, and, and that's actually a clean way of doing it. See those two and just go on off, off and see Terminator Dark Fate. I'm sure movie houses everywhere are doing some kind of special screening combo. So, mm, mm. so yeah, I give it a, um, a uh, I can't do an Austrian accent. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. See the film. See the film now. Get to the cinema. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good. I'm glad. Yeah, I am too. I, I look. Um, there are no particular new moves in this film. Working from a, a stock standard formula. Well, a Terminator. Terminator. Fir- firma, Terminator formula. Firma, yeah. Formula. But in a <laughs> um, lot of ways, which allows me to say that the Grace notes are the same because that's the name of uh, Mackenzie's character in this. <laughs> so. But sometimes we'll that. that's the way to go as well. Yeah, it felt like it, it needed that in, in this case. And it's still relevant. You know, we're still yeah. building machines that we want to turn into hmm. rolling, flying, hovering deaf machines. Robot dogs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, AIs and stuff. Um, and, I, and I think they did the, uh, the Terminator universe procedural quite well yes. too. Yeah, yeah. When there's a you great know. world, you're always happy to revisit it. And, and it, they're benefited by the... Um, the advancement of CGI, yeah. definitely, definitely, definitely. But it's not not overused. No, I didn't feel like they overused. They they lent on it as much good. as as. Um, that's good. But they probably did, and I just didn't notice. But that I mean, then that's fine. <laughs> yeah, then that's subtle special effects. It's about yeah, our experience as viewers. But it just <laughs> moves. It just moves out and just takes name and and kicks shiny metal butts, <laughs> basically. Uh, Terminator, dark fat, yeah. Yeah, in I cinemas mean, now. I did call it dark fat then. I knew I'd do dark that. Dark fat. <laughs> and I'm not even going to. I don't. I don't want to know. I don't want to Google that in the um, the Urban Dictionary. I don't want to <laughs> know at all. <laughs> so, best not to. Know. Best not to know. Um, now we were going to talk about Into the Tall Grass, but I can see that's just not going to happen. But I will prep you for that because we're probably going to have a look at it now that we've watched it. Um, it's a, a a horror movie based on a Stephen King and somebody else. Um, Joe, somebody, uh, a uh, a novella. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. Joe Hall or Hill or something. Or yeah, Joe Hill sounds right. Yeah, and um, it's basically Joe Hill. Yeah. Joe Hill set in His a, uh, but he's not a silent hill. Uh, it's set in a um, in a f- in a field of tall grass. Wait, let me guess. In a small town in USA. It's not even a small town. In a town of some type. There's a that church. Hides out. Terrible horror. A church and a bowling alley, I think. Um, and yeah, so it's a 2019 Canadian horror film directed by Vincenzo Natale. 
and it's based on the 2012 novella of the same name. It's on Netflix. It's on Netflix, so you might want to catch up with that because we will have a look at it. I think we're going to do a few king-worthy things soon because Dr. Sleep is out mm. on the 7th mm-hmm. um, of November and I have just polished off the book as well. So yeah. hopefully we'll get to talk about those as mm-hmm. well. All right, well, um, that's going to be about it for Zero G for today. Uh, and what we will do we is... We looked at a lot of grim stuff today, yeah, didn't we? Yeah, fairly grim before Joe Brunatic will elevate our move into the stratosphere with astral glamour. And I almost called it astral zombies, astro zombies, because that, that, that serial is on my mind at the moment. <laughs> astral glamour, in any case, with Joe Brunatic coming up next. And um, I guess we can go out with... Ooh... Um, <laughs> I think we'll go with. Um, oh, I'm having a crisis. Of um, Bowie to, to Bowie or not yeah, to Bowie? Yeah, to Bowie or not to Bowie. <laughs> that is the thing. Uh, what do you reckon? I I've got mean, I've got Bowie ready to go. Let's Bowie it up. Let's Bowie. We it don't want to. I I like I like our Bowie. Mm. Bowie tradition. So I reckon if we can. And the reason why I wanted to play the Supermen from the Man Who Sold the World album is because a lot of the people we've been talking about now are super types, you know, Henry V mm. and the Terminator and so on. So, or super women, actually, in the case of um, Sarah Connor. Indeed. Uh, you know, and that's what I think we'll go with the Love Supermen it. from the Man Who Sold the World. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. <laughs>